Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I want to take up the events that happened after that second Sunday night after the resurrection, the first Sunday night being Resurrection Sunday, and then the second Sunday night, Jesus appeared for the second time to the disciples, and then sometime after that, they all went up to Galilee, and Jesus followed them, and we're going to talk about that. The last five verses in Mark chapter 16, which is where I am in Mark, talk about the Great Commission, but a lot of stuff happened before the Great Commission, and I'm going to go through that in the parallel passages, passages, and in fact, we're not even mentioning any verses in Mark in this audio. So we'll start, we're going to start with John chapter 21, the whole chapter of which is an account of the appearance of Jesus to seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee after this night, the second Sunday night, when Jesus appeared to all the disciples, including doubting Thomas and convinced Thomas that Jesus was Lord. This was the first appearance of Jesus to the disciples in Galilee. It's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. Other events happened after that which we will take up in the next audio. So let's start in John chapter 21. Verses 1 through 3 say this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's, of course, the Sea of Galilee, different name for it. He revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now remember, Jesus had earlier told them to go to Galilee after he was resurrected. Matthew 28:16 says this, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Matthew 28, 7 is referring to the angels an angel that appeared to the woman on Resurrection Sunday morning. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. So the disciples had heard the instruction from the angel. And also we know that Jesus, from Matthew 28:16, Jesus had directed them to go to Galilee beforehand. And so they did. Now, in verse 1 says, After this Jesus revealed himself, by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, after what? Well, it's after that appearance in the house in Jerusalem on that second Sunday after, or the first Sunday after Resurrection Sunday. The precise date is not known. According to A.T. Robertson, it's sometime between the Resurrection and the Ascension, which happened 40 days after Jesus' death. Now, the disciples are listed, the seven of them. Zebedee's sons are James and John, and so we have five named and two others that are unnamed, it is assumed by many that the others are Andrew and Philip, since they're both since they were both from Bethsaida, which is just north of the Sea of Galilee, northeast. So I'm going to assume that that's right. John Gill says this, Andrew and Philip. If so, there are four disciples that are missing for whatever reason, we don't know. That would be James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, Number one, number two, Simon the Zealot. Number three, Thaddeus, also known as Jude, also known, known as Judas, the son of James. And number four, Matthew, Levi, the guy that wrote the book of Matthew. But seven of them are there. Simon says he wants to go fishing. He went back to his occupation. He didn't have anything, anything else to do. The voluntary donations, which had supported, had supported the disciples up until now, of course, are now dried up. They're going fishing at night. 
Nighttime was favored by fishermen in ancient times, according to the NIV Study Bible. Aristotle, in fact, informs us that ancient fishermen liked to fish at night. And so they were doing as was a custom. Now, this is an interesting point. Zebedee's sons are mentioned here, but James and John are not named in the gospel. Perhaps I'm thinking that John, who wrote this book, the book of John, and who was one of the sons of Zebedee, James's brother, John was modest about himself and his brother, I guess. That's why they didn't mention his name. Now, Jesus revealed himself. Now, Clark says seven post-resurrection appearances. I don't know where that comes from. I've seen estimates as many as ten. It depends on a few assumptions. So let's, let's name as many as we can. We know that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene by herself. Then he appeared to the women separate from Mary Magdalene. That's two. Then he appeared to the meeting of the, of the eleven without Thomas being present on Resurrection Sunday night. That's three. The next eight days later, the next Sunday night with Thomas present, he appeared. That's four. That same night, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus appeared to him. That's five. 1 Corinthians 15:5 and Luke 24:4 say that Jesus appeared to Simon Peter at some point. We don't know when or where, but he did. So that's six. 1 Corinthians 15:7 says that Jesus appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. That's seven. This appearance on the on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is eight. Then he appeared to 500, according to 1 Corinthians 15. That would be nine. And some people say that, and some people say that that 500 meeting of the 500 brethren was not the same as his appearance on the to the disciples on a mountain in Galilee. So that would be 10. We now move to verse 4 in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Now, this is one of several occasions when disciples did not recognize the resurrected Jesus. Mary Magdalene at the tomb did not. I assume that's because he either was too far away or she was so emotionally stricken. She had tears in her eyes. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. He says because Jesus took a different form. He had his reasons for hiding his identity from the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Doubting Thomas didn't recognize him at first until he saw the wounds probably because of lack of belief. just He just wouldn't believe what he saw. I figured Jesus must be looking like the Jesus that he knew, but it wasn't the same Jesus, according to Thomas. So there were, there were people who didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him here either. It's probably because they were, what, 100 yards offshore, the Scripture later says here in John 21, far enough away. You can't see somebody from 100 yards away. So I think that's why they didn't know it was Jesus. It was just so far away. There's some other options. Maybe there's not too much light at daybreak. Remember, they were fishing at night. Sun comes up. They look at, and see him in the dark. Don't recognize him. He was too great a distance. And remember, sound travels well over water. So they they could talk and talk to each other over the water but not see each other. It could be Jesus had assumed another form like he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I don't think so. They weren't expecting to meet him. So they didn't reckon. So that would in, would be another factor in why they didn't recognize him. Verses 5 through 6 in John chapter 21 say this, Men, Jesus called to them, You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Now Jesus calls them men. Then IV says, Friends, uses the noun of direct address as friends, Jesus called to them. The KGV says children. 
The idea is it's a little bit more intimate. Men is not quite as intimate. The word shows tenderness and affection, according to John Gill and Adam Clark. So Jesus tenderly calls to his disciples, Men, you don't have any fish, do you? Now, these fish were meant to be a symbol of all the souls that were going to be one in their ministry, because as they threw the net on the right side of the boat, they could not haul the net in because there were so many fish, and that was symbolic of the fish that they were going to win. Now, remember, Jesus predicted this in Matthew 4, 18 through 19, when he called Simon and Andrew as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, the Scripture says. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people, or fishers of men, as the KGV has. Okay? So that's what Jesus is referring to. He deliberately did this to remind them, hey, guys, I'm preparing you for ministry. Set up the church. Fish people into the kingdom. Now, this was a repeat of a miracle. He had done this before in Luke chapter 5, verse 6. When they did this through the net over, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. Now, I'm sure Jesus did this to remind the disciples of what he had done before. And, in fact, when... Peter saw what had happened, I'm sure that's what made him recognize that Jesus was Lord, as we see in the next verse. When Peter recognizes Jesus, he can recognize Jesus because he saw all those fish and reminded him of what had happened earlier at Capernaum when Jesus had done the miracle before. We go to verse 7 in chapter 21 of John. Therefore the disciple, the one Jesus loved, that would be John, the son of Zebedee, therefore the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped and plunged into the sea. Now, the NIV Study Bible says it's curious that Peter would put on his garment before jumping in the water. Here are some possible reasons for that. A possible reason for that. The Jews regarded a greeting as a religious act. And if it's a religious act, you got to be clothed. You have to be clothed for a religious act. So, Jesus, Peter was preparing himself to meet Jesus by tying his outer garment around him to be more a little bit more formal as he plunged into the water. Gill thinks Peter was entirely naked when he wrapped himself. I don't believe that. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that he was partially clothed with his inner tunic and his outer garment was off while he was fishing. You might ask the question, well, how can Peter swim in the water with that outer garment on? Remember, he's not that far out. The water was shallow because they were only 200 cubits from the shore. So it's about 100 yards away. Peter swam that with his outer garment on, or he walked where the water was shallow. Notice that Peter was the one that plunged in the water. The rest of the disciples took the boat in with the fish, but Peter, no, he's got to get it out ahead. He was always the impetuous one. He's famous for that. I'll never deny you. I'll follow you to the death. And then he denied him. And so he was always... He was the one that struck Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant's ear, when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. Peter was always acting first, thinking last. Verses 8 through 10 in John 21. But since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. Now, the fish that Jesus had cooking, he must have caught them himself. He could have supernaturally driven the fish to the shore. He might have brought the bread with him. Adam Clark says the whole meal was miraculously prepared by Christ. I don't think so. He probably just brought the bread with him. You don't need to multiply miracles. There's plenty of miracles in the Bible without creating speculative 
miracles. But at any rate, they have a double supply of fish, the disciples' fish and Jesus' fish. Verse 11, so Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore. He helped the other disciples haul the net ashore. He didn't do it by himself. He couldn't have done it by himself. The disciples couldn't haul the net in the boat when they first caught all the fish, all 153 of them. They couldn't haul, haul, haul the net, the catch of fish, into the boat. But now it's on the shore. It's probably easier to drag the net up on the shore than it is to pull it up into a boat. So he got up and they helped and helped the guys haul the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Remember in verse 6, which I'll read again, cast the net on the right side of the boat. He, Jesus, told them, and you'll find some, find some fish. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. So they couldn't haul it in before, but now they could here. Probably, again, as I, and my speculation is because it was not as hard to drag this net up on the beach as it was to haul it into the boat, and, and that probably explains that. 153 fish were caught. Why did they count them? What's the big deal? They were probably impressed. This is my speculation. They were probably impressed by the miracle. And 153 fish sounds good when you tell the story. They said, my gosh, man, we put the net over. The you wouldn't believe how many fish we caught. 153. They wanted people to know it was a big miracle. And notice it was not just fish. It was large fish, which kind of foreshadowed the large success of their ministry. Verses 12 through 14 of John 21. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Why? Adam Clark says, Because a proper awe of the deity of Christ had settled upon them ever since the confession of Thomas eight days after the resurrection. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, quote, implying that they would have liked him just to say it is I, but having such convincing evidence, they were afraid of being upbraided for their unbelief and hardness of heart if they ventured to put the question. <laughs> Jesus very likely would have, in my opinion, would have said, what do you mean? You don't know who I am yet after all the... Times I've appeared to you and predicted my death and resurrection, and I've personally appeared to you. You still don't know who I am? But anyway, they knew it was the Lord. It says right here in John 21, verse 12, they knew it was the Lord. No point in asking, because they already knew. Now, when Jesus took bread and gave it to them and took some of the fish that he was cooking and gave it to them, what does that remind them of? The feeding of the, of the 5,000 in the wilderness and the feeding of the 4,000 in the wilderness. That would be one more thing to jog their memory one more event just like the catching of the draft of fishes this was now the third time jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead the first time being on resurrection sunday night in jerusalem the second time being eight days later on the next sunday night in jerusalem the first time with thomas absent the second time with thomas present and this by the sea of galilee is the third time that jesus appeared to the disciples now it means as a group he appeared to the women and to Mary Magdalene and Peter by himself and James by himself. He did individual appearances, but he means, John here means, appeared to the disciples as a group, third time. John 21, verses 15 through 17. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. 
A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Now, why does Jesus ask Peter this three three times, do you love me? It's because he's trying to counteract the three times Jesus denied Jesus. The purpose is to rehabilitate Peter, as John Gill and Adam Clark say. The three questions correspond to three denials. And Peter, being prompted, made three affirmations which countered, countered the three denials. And, of course, testimony of two or three, three testimonies is good according to Jewish law. Jesus knew that Peter's love might be questioned in the light of his denial of Jesus, and he's trying to rehabilitate him. Feed my lambs, of course, those are the believers in Jesus. Now, he uses the word feed the first time, which is bosco, to feed. And the next time, he uses the word poimino, which means to feed also, but it also means to pasture. It has a deeper meaning than just feed. You feed the flock, but you also take care of the flock. You guide the flock. You govern the flock. And you defend the flock. Clark says, by this, he seems to intimate that it is not sufficient merely to offer the bread of life to the congregation of the, of the Lord, but he must take care that the sheep be properly collected, attended to, regulated, guided, etc. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, Jesus asked him, first of all, do you love me more than these? And that's kind of a strange expression, more than these. Here's some options as to what that might mean. He could have meant, do you love me more than these men here, these other disciples? NIV Study Bible suggests that. John Gill denies that's the option. Jesus could have meant, Peter, do you love me more than these things, the fishing gear, the fish, the boats? John Gill denies that, and I tend to not believe that either. The third option is, Jesus could have asked Peter, do you love me more than these other men love me? John Gill affirms that. Adam Clark affirms that, and I've study Bible suggests that's an option. Do you love me more than all these other disciples? These six other disciples love me. Why would Jesus have asked him that? Because Peter had claimed a devotion which is actually above that of the other disciples. John 13:37. Lord Peter asked, Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Matthew 26:33. Peter told him, Peter told Jesus, Even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. And so, Peter's made some big claims here, and so Jesus is saying, can you back those claims up now? You didn't before when you ran, but can you do it now? And, of course, Peter affirms Jesus three times because Peter was a different man after Pentecost. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was full of grace, full of power. Now, let's say something about this love. This, when Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? The English is the same time word. The English word for love is used the same time all three times. Do you love me? But in the Greek, it's two different words. One's agape, one's phileo. And people make a big deal out of that, saying agape is, or people make a big deal out of trying to distinguish the different kinds of love in Greek. Agape is the God love, and phileo is the love for your brother, and eros is the love for the opposite sex. Well, anyway, if you look at these words here, He uses agape and phileo. Do you love me? Brotherly love and godly love. He doesn't make a distinction. And so the Greek scholars point out that this is a myth that is spread through the body of Christ that these Greek words for love have different meanings. No, they don't. They mean love. Agape, phileo. We shouldn't be making a distinction there. Verse 18. 
John 21. I assure you, Jesus is still talking to Peter. When you, Peter, were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. Now, when Jesus says, I assure you, that shows he's getting ready to say something of considerable impact. And he's predicting Peter's death. Nero actually killed Peter approximately 35 years after this, about 65 A.D. This is about 30 A.D. So Jesus, 35 years in advance, predicts Peter's death. So that means Peter knew all his whole life that he was going to die. He was going to be stretched out, tied up, carried where he didn't want to go, namely to a cross, perhaps, or to death, to a place of execution. Adam Clark has a quote here. It was a custom at Rome to put the necks of those who were to be crucified into a yoke and to stretch out their hands and fasten them to the end of it. And having thus led them through the city, they were carried out to be crucified. So that's what Jesus meant when it says someone else will tie you. The Roman soldiers did that, actually, and they will carry you where you don't want to go. That means to a place of execution. Most people don't want to go to a place of execution. Not necessarily execution on a cross, but nevertheless, nevertheless, a place of execution. There's no reason to doubt the early tradition that Peter's death was by crucifixion, and that crucifixion, according to tradition, was upside down because Peter felt unworthy to be crucified like Jesus was. Verse 19 of John 21. He, Jesus, said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. To signify what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. Jesus was saying that Peter would be a martyr. And as I said, he was crucified upside down. Why would Jesus tell Peter he was going to die, I wonder? Why would Jesus do that? Well, it could be because after saying this, he told him, follow me. He was saying, look, when you follow me, you've got to follow me to the death, Peter, all the way. Don't deny me anymore like you did before, all the way. And it is serious, Peter, because you're going to die, so you got to keep following me till you die. I guess he was trying to buck Peter up and trying to say, you're going to have a hard time ahead, but you keep, keep on trucking all the way up until the time you die. And he wanted Peter to remember this. Now, when he said, follow me, I'm assuming that means to follow him to death by crucifixion, as Adam Clark believes. Some people say that Jesus wanted Peter to walk with him for a private interview. Said, follow me. Come over here, Peter. Follow me. I got something to talk to you privately. I don't think that's what it was. I think he said, follow him to death. And if Peter did understand it that way, he was more than willing because he did it. By this time, post-Pentecost, he was not going to deny Jesus as he did before. He followed Jesus all the way to his own execution, to Peter's execution. John 21, verses 20 through 22. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. That disciple... That's John, the one that Jesus loved is John. He doesn't mention it. He doesn't mention himself for modesty's sake, since he's writing the book. That disciple was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, "Lord, who is the one that is going to betray you?" That's John uh, is is uh, asking that question. Verse 21. When Peter saw him, this is back on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, "Lord, what about him? What about John?" If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. And again, I think the follow me is follow me to death. Follow me as a disciple. Now, this phrase, if I want him to remain until I come, I've got a good quote here from Adam Clark. Quote, for nearly 1,800 years, the greatest men in the world have been puzzled with this passage. Well, I'm not puzzled by it, and I'm no great man. Let me give you some, give you some options as to what Jesus meant. First of all, the NIV Study Bible suggests the second coming. 
In fact, the NIV Study Bible says this is a clear declaration of the second coming. Oh, really? If I want John to remain alive until I come back 2,000 years later, Jesus answered, what is that to you? I mean, really? That's obvious? That Jesus would suggest that John might live 2,000 plus years? That's not so clear to me. How about this option? Coming in judgment in eighty seventy, John Gill affirms this. Clark suggests it. If I want John to remain until I come in judgment on Jerusalem in eighty seventy, as was predicted by Jesus at the Olivet Discourse just a few days earlier than this, or uh, maybe a week or so earlier than this, if I want John to remain until I come to destroy Jerusalem, what is that to you? Now that makes sense because John did remain until eighty seventy. He lived past eighty seventy. Peter did not. So that's what I think it is. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown disagree with this, and I'm going to give you this argument, it's, even though it's opposed to the to the stand I take on this issue. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown thinks it refers to the second coming. Actually, actually, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say it doesn't really refer to any time at all. Let me read the quote. From the fact that John alone of the twelve survived the destruction of Jerusalem and so witnessed the commencement of that series of events which belongs to the last days, many good interpreters think that this is a virtual prediction of fact and not a mere supposition. And that's what I believe. But Jameson Fawcett Brown is going to say, no, that's not true. He says this, but this is very doubtful, and it seems more natural to consider our Lord as intending to give no positive indication of John's fate at all. But to signify that this was a matter which belonged to the master of both, who would disclose or conceal it as he thought proper, and that Peter's part was to mind his own affairs. Now, how can Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that this is no positive indication of John's fate at all? Fate at all, when Jesus says, "If I want him to remain until I come," I suppose it's because of the if, the contingency there. If I want him to remain, so in other words, I can let him live as long as he wants. I'm not going to say it's none of your business, Peter. Well, that's possible. But I don't believe it. I believe he's referring to 8070. Another option is Jesus is saying, look, if I can come to John personally and take him away by his natural death when I come to him, I can do that when I want to. That's Adam Clark's idea. I don't think so. Here's an idea I've got. If I want him to remain here for 2,000 more years until I come, why do you care? In other words, it's an expression, a hyperbolic expression, not meant to be taken literally. If I want him to remain for such a crazy time as 2,000 years, what does it matter? Follow me. I don't think that's the answer. Why did Peter even ask, what about John? Peter was probably wondering whether John was going to be killed following Jesus or not, since Jesus had predicted that Peter was going to be killed. I don't know why Peter would have picked on John as opposed to another disciple. It could be that John just happened to be standing there. And in fact, it says in verse 20, Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. He saw John following them, and that's probably why he asked, because John was there. He didn't ask about the other, the other disciples because they weren't there. Verse 23 in chapter 21. So this report spread to the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die, but, quote, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So it seems like the brothers back then are just as, the ancient brothers are just as confused as the modern brothers are. He, he was referring to his coming in judgment in AD 70. I'm convinced. And the early apostles, the early disciples misinterpreted that and says, oh, that means when he comes, that refers to when Jesus comes at the end of the world or some other time such that he would not die. But I don't think, but they were wrong. And John knew they were wrong. That's why he corrects this misconception in, in verse 23. 
Yet Jesus did not tell him he wouldn't die. John 21, verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. This refers back to verse 20, where it says that John is the beloved disciple. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following, following them, verse 20 says, and John says, this is the disciple. This is the disciple, the one that's the one whom Jesus loved is the disciple who testifies to these things. John, of course, is a big book of witness. He talks about signs. He talks about testimony. And he now, again, testifies to these things. What things? That's referring to all the miracles and all the events in the book of John, the whole book, and who wrote them down. So he's not only a witness, he's an author. He's got the proof. This book is historically accurate as any book in the ancient world that you'd ever want to find, even judged by secular terms, even if you don't look at it from the point of view of inerrancy. Just look at it. It's obviously good history. John says, we know that his testimony is true. Who is the we? It could be all men that know the truth now about Jesus. We all Christians know. It could be the Ephesian church he's writing from. It could be the leaders of the Asiatic churches around the Ephesian church. It could be the editorial we. It could be the entire church of God. It could be, I think it's John and his fellow apostles, in my opinion. We don't know who it is exactly. But the point is, is that everybody knows that the testimony of Jesus is true. We go to verse 25 to finish up. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. In other words, John has been selective of all the wonderful and miraculous things that Jesus did. He didn't write them all down. This is similar to that verse in John 20, verse 30, which says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. And so that ends the book of John, and that ends the appearance of Jesus to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. In our next audio, we will look at Jesus' appearance to the 500 on the mountain in Galilee. We're going to assume that the 500 met on that mountain in Galilee, and the Great Commission is given. See you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.